make sure I get my Bible far enough away so I can read it. Our text this morning begins at verse 13. Would you stand down whether you're here or watching us on the, the live stream? Stand out of respect for the Word of God. Our text this morning is Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Here is the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Well, when I think about the church and the host of topics which are related to it, there's a particular topic that when I think of it, it, cause, it causes uh, me to be filled with the greatest joy and hope and optimism and enthusiasm. And, and that topic, which is related to the church, which I'm thinking about, is, is the victory and the conquest of Christ's church. Now, there's a lot of things to be grateful for as Christians who love the church. As, as Presbyterians, we love the government of the church. Our favorite verse is everything being done decently and in order. We love the administration of the church with the officers which Christ has appointed and the way uh, Christ shepherds his people through the office of, of the ministry of the word and of pastoral eldering and through ministers of mercy in the diaconate. And we love the whole system of courts, how churches are organized together. So not just one church can lord it over a particular congregation, but many congregations bound together in a system of government, which you call Presbyterian, which, which watches over it all as we think about things together in common. So the church is not reduced to the tyranny, the tyranny of the dictatorship or the tyranny of the mob. We love Presbyterian government. Uh, as somebody who subscribes fully to the regulative principle of worship, we love the worship of the church. We love the beauty of the church and its worship, and we believe particularly that the beauty of the church's worship is its simplicity. The simplicity of that worship is we do exactly what God says, nothing less and nothing more, because the reason for why we gather here is, is not primarily for ourselves, is to bring glory to God, and God is the one who is in charge of defining what glorifies Him. And that's what He commands in His Word. So we love the worship of the church. We love to sing the Psalms before God. We love to hear the voices, all of the voices, even the tiny and small and young voices, sing aloud with consecrated hearts to the Lord. We love the worship of the church. We love the fellowship of the church. We love the fellowship of the church. And we think about the fellowship of the church. What we remember is that each and every member of the body of Jesus Christ is united to him. And because united to him, it means 
that they all, each and every member of Christ is a partaker with him in all of his treasures and gifts, and that each one is given a special gifting from the Lord so that they can bless the members of the congregation. And that's why the fellowship of the saints is so savory to us, because if we were all like me, it would just be vanilla. It would be bland, but the reality is that everybody has their own gift and their own contribution, and that's what makes it savory. Because we salt this fellowship with the exercise of the gifts given by Christ. We love the fellowship of the saints. We could relate multiple other topics, but the point is, as I think through the long list of topics that really seems to put spiritual wind in my sails, is to think particularly about this, the victory of the church. The victory of the church. And we see that victory of the church in the words of Christ's promise here to Peter in verse 18, when he says, I say to you, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Haiti will not overpower it. Now, it's interesting to us that right there in a single verb, we discern the victory of the church when Jesus himself says, I will build. If Christ had said nothing more than, I will build my church, we would have enough to lock it away to the bank and never doubt it again. Right? We remember Psalm 127, which we love to sing, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders lose their pain. In other words, the psalmist is saying, if God is the one building, the project will be completed. If he builds, it won't fail. But Jesus doesn't just leave us here with this verb of promise, I will build. He doubles down on it as he connects the clauses in verse 18. He says, I will build and. And if what follows next, which doubles down and reinforces the sense of promise in our text. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. In other words, what Jesus sets before the church is that he is, uh, he is giving it a great promise of hope that his church, under his command, under his authority, through his strength, will prevail in the victory which Christ has, which is that the nations would bow their knees to Jesus Christ. One of the texts in the New Testament which lays hold of this in such a brief but a wonderful summary fashion is that great confession of faith about the Christ in Philippians chapter 2 plucked out of Isaiah 45. Before me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is the victory of the church. That is the victory which Jesus speaks of here when he says, I will build it. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But there's something else here in our text, which is the key, which holds all of this together. We have a great hope and promise proclaimed. But what we could see is that the key or, or the glue that holds it all together is Peter's confession about Christ. And you can see that great confession about about Jesus Christ in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And it is precisely that confession that Jesus refers to here in verse 18 when he says, Upon this rock, upon this rock of this true confession about Christ, I give you a promise. You see, he takes the confession of Peter about him and he stakes the promise of the victory of the church to it. I'll build. It won't fail. I will glorify my name throughout the earth. So the main point of our text is that the true church confessing the true Christ has this great hope and promise of victory. We'll take that apart in two different pieces, the confessional basis of that victory and the inviolable promise of that victory. So let's begin now with the confessional basis of that victory. And as we do that, we should think about the context of it all, which begins in verse 13 when Jesus and his disciples are on a mountain retreat. It looks like they went camping. And you know, there's nothing to refresh the soul like camping and going out into the mountains and sitting on the hillsides where you're so far away from your cell phone and computer and cars that you can actually hear bees buzz. You can listen to to the wind and the breeze and flies hopping and jumping and lizards crawling and squirrels chirping, uh, crows squawking. You see, all, all of this is happening when you're on the hillside, and that's exactly where he is because we're told he is at... Uh, Caesarea Philippi, which is really base camp for Mount uh, Hermon. This vast, tall, towering peak which looked across this valley and at the top of it almost year-round was a, was a cap of snow right on the top. And so Jesus here has gathered his disciples together for a little rest. And I think it's useful for a moment to, to just place within the, within the timeline of Jesus' ministry when this occurs... This happens after the feeding of the thousands with the loaves and fish. This happens after that great bread of life discourse in in John chapter 6. This happens at the entry point to the very last and final phase of Jesus' public ministry where we are told that he determined to set his face like flint for Jerusalem, knowing he was going there to be betrayed, to be handed over, and to be crucified. So if you think about that, the context is full of dramatic overtones and even a sense of a dark, ominous type cloud because Jesus has performed miracles. He's at the pinnacle and the height of his popularity. And guess what happened? We're told in John 6 that the people started turning away from him. Because they didn't like to hear what he was saying about himself. So he went from the world's most glamorous and popular preacher overnight to uh, this kind of a crazy itinerant preacher on the hillside. Speaking strange things. Heading to Jerusalem to die. And it's at this moment here when he gathers these disciples and and he shelters them from the crowds and the throngs, and they just go have a little bit of retreat, some, some R&R, if you will. And, and at some point during that uh, particular time and season, Jesus looks right at his 12 disciples who are gathered around the campfire with him, and he puts a question to them, as you see in verse 13. Who 
do people say that the Son of Man is? That's a heuristic question, by the way. And what do we mean by a heuristic question? What we mean is it's a question that is designed to draw insight, to raise awareness, to cause people to think, to grapple with ideas and say, what is the sense and what is the meaning of all this? So they can come to understand. And what Jesus, first of all, wants to do is to clarify in the minds of his disciples that the way they think about Christ is different than from how the crowds think about Christ. And it's interesting that Jesus uses a title for himself which is simultaneously ambiguous and meaningful. Son of Man. Son of Man. It's meaningful because it reaches back to the Old Testament. Particularly to Daniel chapter 7, 13, where we read about the Son of Man who uh, ascends into his kingdom. A, a glorious figure there, a messianic text, powerful text, written hundreds of years before Christ. It speaks of his divine nature and his eternal kingdom. But, um, well, the Jews of Jesus' day didn't think of the Messiah in that way they had begun to formulate a concept of Messiah, which was according to human, opin uh, human opinion and, and, and man-made wisdom. So Jesus liked to use this word son of man, or this title son of man to refer to himself, because though he understood its meaning and significance, the crowds looked at it, and because they had such different expectations about Messiah, they just sort of shrugged their shoulders. It meant nothing. It fell on, on deaf ears to them. So it's simultaneously ambiguous and meaningful. And Jesus puts the question to his disciples, saying, well, who do they say me, this son of man, is? Well, they all start responding. By the way, they use plural. Who do uh, they say? Who do you say all the people say I am? So, well, they start talking about it. What they found was, People had a lot of opinions about Jesus, didn't they? Some people thought he was John the Baptist. And, and uh, one reason why that was possible is because so many people had known about the ministry of John the Baptist because it was so wildly popular and it would be popular today too. If somebody was standing outside of Palm Springs wearing a leather, uh, wearing a, a hair jacket and a leather uh, belt around his waist and eating locusts and wild honey and telling people that the kingdom of God was near and the apocalypse was now, people would be listening. Well, he was put to death by Herod because he didn't like Herod preaching to him about his gross immorality. And Herod starts circulating the rumor that Jesus, with all of his popularity, was John the Baptist resurrected. And it terrified him. He didn't like Jesus at all. Others thought he was Elijah, and there's some plausible reason for that, because the last Old Testament, the last written prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi, and it spoke of the day in which Elijah would come again to prepare the people of God for the coming of the kingdom. So it makes some sense he might be regarded as Elijah. Others said he was Jeremiah. That's what the disciples said here. Some people say, you're Jeremiah. How could that be? Jeremiah was killed hundreds of centuries, hundreds of years before. And the reason is because Jesus was such a powerful preacher, and yet Jesus had a life of suffering. 
And when they looked at Jesus, they thought of not somebody glorious, but of Jeremiah. You want to read about a suffering preacher? You go read about Jeremiah, believe me. That's a man of new hardship. And then there was always this group of the crowd that's not sure about anything. We call these the nuns today, right? <laughs> They're the undecideds. Well, he could be almost anything, couldn't he? But, but the key to all of this is the ignorance and the disunity. I want you to notice here in the disciples' own report about what the crowds were saying, and believe me, they must have heard because they were around them and people were talking out loud as Jesus was healing and teaching. They could, they could hear the difference of opinion. And the thing that strikes us here is the, um, the disunity and the ignorance. No one knows anything. There's no consensus. And Calvin makes the simple but wise observation here that the prevailing ignorance is a testimony to the darkness and weakness of the depraved mind. After all, Jesus was right in front of them. They heard him speak. They watched him perform signs and wonders and miracles. And they are scratching their heads about who this man is. All of us would like to think that if we ever had met Jesus in person, faith would be simple. And I would say, really? Look at how bad his own disciples blundered. They hand him over to die. You see, this is, a, this is a testimony to the darkness of the human mind apart from the work of the Spirit of God. And, and one reason why we continue to stand in this darkness from one generation to the next when people today are still confronted with Christ in the Word, they still get it wrong. And one reason is because... We don't want this Christ. The reality is, it's not that Jesus' revelation is unclear. It's what we want in Jesus is different than who Jesus is. And so, instead of accepting the Christ of Scripture, people profess false Christs and make counterfeits so that he is made in their image. Whew. Listen to people for five minutes today. If you ask them about Jesus, and you'll find out a lot of what people don't understand. I came across the strangest article. And maybe you saw it too. Of a bearded lady, Jesus. Yeah, there was a church that was seeking to attract people to come to worship with a picture of a bearded lady, Jesus, with makeup, a dress, dancing under a rainbow. So the reporter asked the common sense question, why did you do that? And the spokesman for the church said, we think it's important to celebrate diversity and inclusion so that we have a message about Jesus which connects to all kinds of people. The last time I read the Bible, Jesus wasn't concerned in that. In fact, he said, I'm going to offend you. What I tell you about me is going to set you against your family members, possibly. But the path of following Christ is just that narrow. 
we don't get to decide who Jesus is. Jesus is God's revelation. He is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And so this is the thing that's so wrong today in the church's testimony about Christ is Jesus is made into everything that the Bible said he is not. And so there's no consistency in the witness. So today, Jesus is pro-abortion. He's for gay marriage. He celebrates diversity and conclusion. He's a neo-Marxist radical. He's protesting in the street. Jesus is made out to be absolutely everything that every single fringe splinter constituency group wants. Except for the Christ of Scripture. I should tell us something this morning that's very important, people of God. When Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, who do these people say that I am? They've been hearing me preach. They've been watching me do what I do. What are they saying? It was, getting, it was designed for these disciples who had been taught and ministered to and discipled by Christ. That they have to clarify in their thinking the difference between what the crowds are saying and what they confess. Because the difference is not just stark. It makes an eternal difference. So Jesus now, having heard all of that, not shocked or surprised, okay? He's not picking his jaw up off the floor here. Stunned. Makes it very clear with a direct question to the disciples. He said, but who do you say that I am? Literally, in the original, it's, you, but who me? So there's two things that are very important in the way the phrase is structured. Number one, he's putting a spotlight on you. By the way, it's plural, y'all. Not just one of you or each one of you, but what do you as a group say? And then they, me. Spotlight back onto him. Who am I? What is my identity? So he's drawing out for them to think the right way in their mind about him. Says, who do you think that I am? And by putting it that way, it reminds us this morning, people of God, that Jesus' question implies something that should be the case. That the people of God should have a unified confession about Christ. Jesus is not expecting an answer in which four or five different opinions are given. Jesus is expecting an answer which highlights truth, what he has taught. And so as we hear this confession this morning, people of God, this be a reminder to us that we are not entitled to have our own confession about Jesus Christ, as if it's our personal privilege to invent any old personal Jesus we want for ourselves. We are to have this Christ as ours. And to confess this Jesus. And so I want you to see now the substance of the confession. Verse 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Both statements are important. The Christ and the Son of the living God. And we start with the Christ there. And that is important for us this morning. Because Peter doesn't say you are a Christ. And that's significant because the whole concept of Christ, which means anointed, connects back to the Old Testament. And you think for a minute, who in the Old Testament was anointed? Well, prophets were anointed. 
priests were anointed and kings were anointed. Three different kinds of people were anointed in the Old Testament. And now Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are the Christ. Not one of the rabble of the anointed. You are the meaning, the exhaustive fulfillment of this. And what that means is that he was granted a measure of the Holy Spirit in abundance. Peter testifies of this later on in Acts 10.38 where he says to the household of Cornelius that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed. For God was with him. You see, the anointing was this abundant outpouring of the Holy Spirit for this great messianic task and calling. He is the prophet who was to come to reveal the secret counsel and will of God for a redemption. He was the great high priest who was to come to sacrifice, to offer himself in sacrifice so that through the shed of his blood we would have redemption. He was the great king, the royal son of Psalm 2 and the great king of kings who was to come, who was promised to David, who would rule over all things. Peter's confession here is spot on, but the second part of it is just as significant and perhaps even more significant and even insightful than the first because he doesn't just say you are the Christ. He says you are the son of the living God. It is one thing to confess that Christ has a great title in office. It's a whole nother thing. To look at that man standing right in front of you and say, you are nothing less than the Son of God. There is something about his person. There is something about the dignity of his nature which rises so far above the creaturely and the humanity. He's eternal God. This is a mind-boggling confession here. You're the son of the living God. That word living is used so often in Scripture to contrast the true God from idols. False gods and false religion, they're all dead. They're really nothing. They're vapors. They're vanity. They're emptiness. To say that God is alive is to say everything. And so here, as he looks upon Christ, he calls him the son of the living God. And he speaks of his divine essence and eternal pre-existence. Peter, speaking for the twelve, nails it. The Christ, the son of the living God. And then now notice what Jesus says in response as he clarifies the means of this confession Verse 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is asked, the twelve, who am I? Peter answering for the twelve says, you're the son of the living God. Jesus responds by saying, and you, Peter, my friend, are the son of Jonas. You're just a man. You're just flesh and blood. But he said something else, Peter. 
you're blessed. Now, that's an important word to think about for a minute, isn't it? You're blessed, Peter. You need to, as you hear that, think about the crowds. All those people had seen Jesus and heard Jesus. They're saying all kinds of things about Jesus. But here, Peter, well, he, he gets right. He's able to stand up, put his shoulders back, and belt out with clarity and truth, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Peter, that means you're blessed. Well, why? Well, the answer is in that great word, because. Huh? Look at your text. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because... Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, because is Jesus' way of accounting for and explaining the blessing of Peter. And what is the blessing of Peter? The blessing of Peter is that he has confessed the truth. But how did he do it? And Jesus' emphatic flesh and blood didn't do that. Flesh and blood is a Jewish way of referring to human mortality and depravity and weakness and corruption. And Jesus emphatically states that the reason why you're not answering like the crowds is because flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. That's the source of the revelation of the crowds. Flesh and blood was their source of revelation. Human opinion was their source of revelation. Human autonomy was their source and standard of revelation. But here... Jesus says to Peter, the reason you're not like that is because of God's grace. God saved you from the darkness of your own mind. God saved you from the depravity of your own soul. God saved you from the hardness of your own heart. God, in a rich act of mercy, disclosed this. He revealed this to you. See, God enabled the scales to fall off of Peter's eyes so that as he looked at Jesus, he knew two things about him that were simultaneously and inseparably true. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God, the incarnate Savior. Jesus says Peter is blessed because God in his grace enabled him to believe, enabled him to understand enabled him to know, enabled him to confess. That's a gift of grace, and that's the way a person believes. In fact, it's the only way a person believes. As I think about that this morning for our application, the first thing that I want to make clear here is that blessing is through true confession. Blessing is through true Confession. And Calvin has a great quote here. And what he says, we must learn that all are by nature miserable and incursed until they find a remedy in Christ. All by nature are miserable and accursed until they find a remedy in Christ. You see, what Jesus is saying by declaring Peter blessed is he's also at the same time saying, these are under a curse. Those who are basing their thoughts of Jesus based upon flesh and blood and human revelation are under a curse because they're not confessing the truth about Christ. 
the source of blessing is that God in his grace takes that depraved and dark sin-stained mind and he wipes it clean with the blood of Jesus Christ and he fills it with his Holy Spirit and he enables them to see the truth. And he gives them a will to and a desire to and an appetite to and faith to do it. The way to blessing is confessing Christ truly. And that's what makes it so sad and offensive to hear about the false testimonies of men. Because there's no pathway to blessing and salvation by believing in bearded lady Jesus is absurd and stupid and foolish as it sounds. So many in our age are being constantly caught up in false Christs. And it offends us because it's so patently false and absurd and wrong. But it also reminds us this morning that it is a rebuke to try to believe in Jesus on your own standards. And when you do, there's no blessing for you. There's no salvation for you. People of God, the same blessing which Christ pronounced upon Peter, he pronounces upon you this morning. If you open your mouth and confess with your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, the Son of the living God, you are blessed forever. By grace. You may say, Pastor, I don't have very much this morning. And I'd say, we're all in the same boat. But the one thing we do have is far better than anything else this world can give us. That's the blessing of Christ. Don't let that joy be stolen. Don't let that blessing being taken away by being coerced or manipulated or pushed into confessing some other Jesus that isn't this Christ, the Son of the living God. The way for you to have real peace and real joy and real blessing in your life is by clinging to the Christ of Scripture, not the Christ of human imagination. It reminds us this morning what an awesome responsibility and calling we have as a church in this moment to make sure we are on record speaking the truth about Jesus Christ. There is nothing but emptiness in confessing a false Christ. A personal Jesus won't help you. A celebrity, a a Jesus who celebrates diversity won't help you. We already know that Jesus loves all people, all the different kinds of people. That's not the issue. Made up Jesus doesn't help. This one is the one who saves the Christ, the son of the living God. And the second part of this is that A true confession is sustained through God teaching us about our sin. True confession of Jesus Christ is sustained by God teaching us about our sin. And you say, well, why in the world do you say that? I don't even see that in our text. And I say, well, it's uh, one of the most humbling things to do is to preach so forcefully that Peter got it right. 
and then to show you in the next text, Peter got it wrong. If your Bible's open, by the way, it should be. Look down below. Jesus foretold his death. Verse 21, he's going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed. And then Peter took him aside and he rebuked him. He went from confessing Christ to correcting Christ. Lord forbid it. You see, it's as if Peter didn't truly wrap his mind around the truth he was confessing and why that truth is what it was. It's one thing to speak correctly about the titles and the offices and the person, but it seems as if he missed the implication of it all. Why was the Son of God incarnate? Just to speak about titles? I don't think so. Human history is divided by the defining moment of the Son of God incarnate being nailed to a cross. And why was he nailed to a cross? So that he would die there for our sin. And it seems to me that in spite of Peter confessing the titles and the person he had failed to confess the truth about himself is that he was a sinner. And his only hope of salvation was that Christ, the son of the living God, going to that cross and being strung up between thieves and crucified and shedding his blood for his sin. The way to having a sustained true confession about Christ is God and his grace, not just unveiling to you who Christ is in his office and his persons, but also disclosing to you your sin. Because if you're not a sinner, you don't need this Christ. If sin isn't ugly and awful and corrupting and dangerous and consequential and devastating, who needs this Jesus? Because the heart of his mission was to go to that cross and to die in order to save us from our sins. And so I warn us this morning, people of God, that the great obstacle to not continuing on and you're confessing Christ is your own words you tell yourself about you. The greatest obstacle to continuing to confess Christ is the very things you tell yourself about you. You see, the hope and the joy of the Christian life is only as alive as it is in the moment that every single day of my life, I know exactly what the Apostle Paul said. I am carnal, sold under sin. That I need the blood of Jesus Christ to wash me from all of my sins and guilty stains every single day. And that's always the Christ that I'll need until I die. People of God, this morning, if you would continue on and you're confessing Jesus Christ, be sure that it's grounded in you confessing the truth about yourself. 
Because only knowing your depravity and your sinfulness as a believer and all of your feelings in the Christian life, that you will love Christ more and more as you go through this life because you will begin to know more and more just how merciful God is to you. If you're not growing the knowledge of God's mercies, you're not growing the knowledge of God. We should pray, God, teach us to know our sin. If he does that, we will be sustained in our confessing Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's the confession. Now let's see the inviolable promise. I can work through this fairly quickly, except for a tricky point in our text. Here's the confession here. I say to you uh, that this uh, promise is built on the confession. Christ will build his church. That's the great promise. Uh, It's built on this confession. I say to you, Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, I've already tipped my hand where I'm going with this. Um, You may be familiar with the fact that there's some real controversy here about what this means. But I need to clarify uh, for you the difference in meaning of the words that Jesus used here. He calls him uh, Peter, which means a pebble. A pebble. Or a small stone. Like when you go down to the lake and you do the one irresistible thing that everybody does when they stand in front of a lake, right? They pick up a rock and they throw it into the water. If you can resist doing that, you have got tremendous restraint. There's nothing better than getting by the lake and throwing a rock in the water. That's a pebble, though. The word Petra that Jesus uses when he says this rock is a giant boulder or bedrock. Something thick, firm, fixed, permanent feeling, strong. So here in our text, this is what Jesus says. I say to you, Peter, upon this Petra. See that? Two different words in Greek. Peter pebble, Petra Boulder, massive stone, big rock. So there's a lot of debate over what does this rock mean here in verse 18. When Jesus says, Peter, upon this rock I will build. Well, two dominant interpretations are this, that... Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the Petra, the massive boulder bedrock thing. Or Peter himself is the Petra. The pebble is the boulder. He himself is the foundation of the church. Well, I don't think you'll be surprised when I don't pick that interpretation, right? This text is not about Peter, is it? What dominates this text? What dominates this text is Christ and his identity and Peter's confession of it. How in the world would all of a sudden Peter in his person being smuggled in is the main point of the text? It's an impossibility. Peter is not the Petra, the boulder. Peter's true confession, which was unveiled to him by the mercy and the grace of the Heavenly Father, is that massive boulder stone. And Jesus says, upon that, I will build my church. Upon the truth, I will build 
my church. Here's the great promise of Christ to his people. He will build his church upon the massive granite-like foundation of truth. Not little pebbles or sand on a seashore, rotted out wood or broken down people. The promise, I will build my church. And it is a powerful word here because Jesus himself takes the ownership of it when he says, I will build. I will build my church. And we know how he does it because the word of God fills out the pieces for us because Paul talks about how that, uh, the Ephesians were once aliens and strangers from the covenant and so forth. And now he says they're fellow citizens, saints, and members of God's household fit together. Peter calls believers living stones who are being built up a spiritual house. And so we know exactly what Jesus means when he says he will build his church. It means he will take all of us, little pebbles, if you will, little stones, and he will fit us together in the unity of the fellowship of the saints cemented by the blood and spirit of Christ. The way Christ will build his church is by subduing the lost and bringing them unto his mercy. The way Jesus will build his church is to take crooked stones out of the dirt and smooth them off and shape them so each one fits exactly with their need in the structure of the building. I will build my church. And if it's the Christ, the Son of the living God, making the promise, then we can be absolutely certain this morning of its fulfillment. I will build. But just to double down on it, Jesus forges another promise to the first. Look at verse 18. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I, I, I kind of realize there's a lot in these verses, and I know I'm giving a jet airliner overview, and maybe we'll come back to it again sometime. It's a lovely text and full of implications, by the way, for just about everything you can think of. But what do we do with all this? Uh, a thumbnail sketch is this. Uh, Hades is probably a reference to, to the powers of darkness and death and Satan's hordes. I, I take it that way. It cannot be the place of the damned. They don't think that's what he's referring to. He's talking about the realm of darkness here. Gates, well, it's a metaphor, but obviously we think of gates in the old world. They were for um, defensive fortification, protection of a city. But also, they were sort of the place where civic life took place. Government work would take place, lawsuits would take place, voting would take place, commerce would take place. It took place at the gates. So the gates were a sort of administrative unit as well as a defensive fortification. It was where the city sort of collaborated together for the life of the town. If you take all that and sort of piece it together, you can kind of get a, a handle on this metaphor, this image of, of the gates of Hades, saying this is the administrative unit of the, of the kingdom of darkness. And, and, and now Jesus brings that in to the first promise by the conjunction and, and, and he says, they will not prevail. The gates of Hades will not prevail. And you see, well, how does that make any sense at all? Uh, the last time I checked, Gates stay in one place, right? 
You don't move gates. Gates stay in a place. You know, the gate's there to, to open the fence so the cows can go through and you close it behind. They, they don't just keep following the cattle wherever they go. The gates stay where they are. So it says something that doesn't it? That this is the posture of the kingdom of darkness. It is defensive. It is seeking to stubbornly cling to every lost soul. And to put up a defense against Christ. And the other image is true. That it's Christ taking the attack to the darkness. So that he can steal souls from the clutches of darkness. For the enslaved. Those in bondage. Those chained. Those lost. Those in despair. Those who are hopeless. Those who are sin broken. Those who are laboring under his curse. I wish we had a whole sermon for this now. Now that I regret, I regret that we didn't have this massive time to really unfold this. Because the imagery is so powerful here. Jesus is saying, I'm going to take up the sword and I am going to storm the gates so that I bring every lost soul whom I died for to heaven. No one will be left behind. The gates of hell will be no fortress for that. Jesus has a great promise here then, as he says, not even the most powerful fortification you can think of against the conquest of the kingdom can stop it. But don't forget the basis of it all. The confession of the truth about Christ. The truth is inseparable to the mission. The confession is inseparable from the conquest. And so what does that mean for us this morning, people of God? It means that this is the call for the people of God and that call is to be the true church which confesses the true gospel in order that it experiences the fulfillment of this true promise. It's very clear here from our text that Jesus does not build the true church upon the false confession that he is John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or any other false Christ you can think of. He builds it on the truth. And that means this morning, people of God, we all have a role to play. It means this morning, people of God, that we all have a role to play in the outworking and fulfillment of this great promise of conquest. And that is persevering in our confession about Christ. You say, well, I'm a believer this morning. I don't need that already. I'm saved. Oh, yeah? Well, you should tell that to the preacher in the book of Hebrews where he repeatedly admonishes the believers to persevere in their confession. See, the Lord knows our frame that we are but dust and that we are weak and we need the admonition to stand firm, to hold fast, to speak the truth. And so it's important for us this morning to make sure that as we hear these words 
of Peter and its confession and Jesus' approbation and the benediction he places upon it, that we need to double down and seek the help of God to make sure that when we confess Christ, we are upholding the true Christ. That he is the Christ. That he is the Son of God. And that he has come to save his people from their sin and to destroy the works of the devil. This text that sticks in my mind is 1 John 3, 8. And John says this about his Savior. And he was here that day when Peter made this true confession. And it says this, that the Son of God appeared in order that he might destroy the works of the wicked one. He does that through his cross. He does that by each individual coming to him, owning their sins, and knowing that what they find in Jesus, which makes him the Savior, is that he sheds blood for it in order that we might be saved. And so our part is to confess to the watching world that the victory of the church is bound up with victory over sin. And we must say to the world that doesn't hope in Jesus that there's no hope apart from this Jesus. And as we do that, we can be sure that Jesus will fulfill this great promise of taking that pile of stones, his people, and he'll fit them all together in a great victory march to build that great dwelling place of the Lord, which he calls his household and his church. So this morning, people of God, let's be sure that we're doing what Christ has called us to in our place, confessing Jesus as Peter. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father Almighty, we thank you for uh, this word that's a uh, a word of exhortation, but also at the same time, a word of the deepest and most profound encouragement. Because we know that uh, the identity of our Savior is fixed. And it doesn't come from human councils or opinions of men or decisions of church courts. It's from above. And that means it's an imperishable revelation. One that can't change. It's immutable. It stands forever. It's true. So help us, Lord, to cling to this confession and to this Christ, knowing that uh, he is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, who's come for the redemption of his church and its conquest, that his name may be glorified. And as we think upon those things, Lord, fill our hearts with the joy and the promise and the hope and the optimism that though the days of the church right now look dark, there's, a, there's yet a glorious future for your people because Jesus said it was so when he said, I will build my church. Help us to rest in the promises, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name.